Well, my name is Steve Mordenberg. Uh, good morning, everyone. And uh, as usual, this is my, my wife and lovely assistant, Holly. Um, I'm excited to share the message this morning entitled Priorities in Prayer. We're reading, we're reading the gospel. Um, we're, reading, we're reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. I have revealed you to the ones you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. For I passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it, and they know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world, but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I'm departing from the world. They are staying here, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, so they will be united, just as we are. I've told them many things while I was with them in this world, so they would be filled with my joy. I have given them your word. And the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Sanctify them in the truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I will pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world would know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Oh, righteous Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they will see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. The word of the Lord. You might recognize that prayer is the, the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Uh, I know it was a long passage, uh, but I, I wanted you to hear it in its entirety. It happens to be the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in all four Gospels, and a real treasure in God's Word. Let me start by asking you a question, and feel free to shout out your, your answers. If your house was on fire, and you only had a few minutes to get out, what would you take with you? My wife. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, you only have two arms, <laughs> so <laughs> um, no dogs. Okay. Um, well, of course, of course, I asked you this question to get you to start thinking about the things that you value, the things that you prioritize in your life. And here's a second question: When it comes to prayer, 
Have you ever thought about the priorities of God? You might turn to me and say, but doesn't the Bible teach us not to be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving? Let your request be made known to God. Well, yes, it does, and that's a great comeback. The truth is, the beauty of God's love and grace is that he invites us into prayer to ask for anything. We're given tremendous freedom in prayer, so I'm not here today to tell you you can pray for this, and you can't, but you can't pray for that. But here's the real question. Because we have such freedom and such latitude in prayer, have you ever thought to ask him, God, what are the most important things to you? What are your priorities? As I spent time studying the final prayer of Jesus, I felt like I found some answers to this question. The thought of priorities hasn't really caught my attention until I looked at the concerns that Jesus had during the final hours of his ministry. So let me give you a brief context for this prayer, the events of this night you should be pretty familiar with. It starts in chapter 13 with Jesus sharing the final Passover meal with his disciples. He identifies Judas Iscariot as his betrayer, and he tells Peter that he'll deny him three times before the rooster crows. Then from chapter 14 to 16, he gives his final teachings to the disciples, foundational truths about the coming events and the kingdom of God. He declares the only way to salvation. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He tells them he has to leave and where he's going. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you to go, that I go to prepare a place for you? And promises them the Holy Spirit, fulfilling the promise that I will never leave you or forsake you. Just a few hours away from being arrested, condemned to death, crucified and buried, at a moment in his life when he had every reason to pray for himself, Jesus instead spends his time pouring into his disciples and then drops this compassionate prayer into the middle of the chaos. When you read these chapters, it becomes clear the things Jesus valued, his priorities. He loved his disciples to the very end and accomplished everything the Father set before him, just before he hands over the keys to the kingdom. That's the first thing that I want to call our attention to. Jesus maintains a consistent compassion and focus right up to the very end of his ministry. It's really quite astounding. John, John 17, the high priestly prayer. Two things I want to focus on today, the character in which he prays and the priorities that Jesus petitions the Father for. This prayer is unique to Jesus. However, it presents itself in a way that we can copy and pattern our own prayers after. Consider the structure of the prayer. It's organized into three sections. In the first section, Jesus prays to glorify God. He's accomplished everything he was called to do, and now it's time to bring his ministry to a glorious conclusion so that God will be glorified through his sacrificial work. What's captivating about this language in the first section that we're listening to on, is, is, that we're listening in, in on is the very nature of the triune God. It's always one member of the Trinity seeking to lift up another member of the Trinity. In Scripture, it's never the Father lifting up the Father, it's the Father glorifying the Son, the Son glorifying the Father, and the Holy Spirit glorifying the Father and the Son. 
so when you observe when you so when you observe about the, so what you observe about the nature of the trinity is that it's always selfless it's an unusual path but in order for god to become glorified jesus had to become glorified jesus understands the significance of completing his work in salvation he's willing to die to himself and in doing so he accomplishes what's best for the human race Now, the word glorify is used in the church all the time, but what does it mean in today's culture? Here's the simplest definition I could come up with. To glorify someone means to publicly praise that person so that everyone thinks they're great. Or in today's vernacular, it means to make someone famous so that everyone thinks, wow, that person is amazing. For many of us, when we think of the word famous today, it often means someone who has the most followers on social media. So let me ask you another question. And again, feel free to call out your answers. Who's on the list of the top 10 people on Twitter who have the most followers? I heard I heard I heard a few. Okay, there you are. There's there's the list. Um two two presidents a, su- a successful businessman, Elon Musk is number two. Five entertainers, one of the best soccer players in the world, and the prime minister of India. And Barack Obama tops the list with over 133 million followers. And I agree, Messi's the best soccer player in the world. <laughs> Are you surprised at the names who made the list? And what, and what makes someone famous? You know, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with social media, but... How are these top influencers influencing others? What are they saying across this platform, and are they using it for good? By the way, you should know that today alone, Jesus has over 2.2 billion followers worldwide. And that's just today. That's not, not counting the last 2,000 years. <laughs> and all that without social media. We follow the example of Jesus. Our, our first priority should be to glorify God with our lives. The reason we don't get whisked away after our salvation is because we're here on earth to make God famous, to make him known to others. This is the first thing that should characterize our prayers because that's how you'll impact the lives of those you love and care for. So before you get, the small, before you get to the small things, which are, are fine to pray for, first pray that God would use everything in your life the good stuff and the bad, all of it to make him famous, using your life life to bring others to salvation. In the second section, Jesus shifts his focus to the disciples. There's a lot said in verse 6 through 11, but a good portion of it is simply a time of communion between Jesus and his Father. He's making statements God would be fully aware of, but he's sharing his heart with the Father. How about you? Are your prayers spent mainly in making requests of God, giving him your to-do list? Because if we pattern our time in prayer after Jesus, a portion of it should simply be spent sharing things going on in our lives, things we're excited about and our hopes and our dreams. Jesus doesn't petition God for anything until verse 11, where he asks the Father to protect them by the power of your name. The words now protect means to guard or preserve someone. And in the ancient world, the power of your name basically summarized all that you are and all that you've done. 
It had significant meanings. It had significant meaning. Your name was essentially you. So if you put it together, what Jesus is saying is, God, guard and protect them. Keep them close to you. They are yours. Why would Jesus pray this prayer? Well, because as we know, man's loyalty can be pretty fickle. For example, some of you know I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. But every time, I, but ever since I moved to New England, I've struggled with loyalty to an NFL football team. Uh, before I moved to New England, I was a Cincinnati Bengals fan. But when we moved here, the Patriots were in their dynasty years. And with all the winning going on, I started cheering for the Patriots. Besides, as Boston fans go, I was putting my life in danger if I didn't. <clears throat> then Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski moved to Tampa Bay. And I'll admit, I was pretty, pretty excited when the Buccaneers won the Super Bowl. And I'm expecting to hear some hisses now, you know. <laughs> but then last year, the Cincinnati Bengals made it all the way to the Super Bowl. And what do you know? All of a sudden, I'm painting my face black and orange again. <laughs> and I'm, I'm cheering for the Bengals. I know, it doesn't get any more fickle than that. But to get back on point, Jesus prayed for the protection of his disciples' hearts and minds so they would remain loyal and in love with God. And loyalty, by definition, means sticking to, to something or someone through the good times and the bad. And let's remember one thing. God is always loyal and in love with you. That's guaranteed. If you've ever trusted in Jesus, that promise is done. But our loyalty and our love is not guaranteed because we're human. Sometimes we feel in love, sometimes we don't. We struggle to remain loyal to a lot of things, but most importantly, to God. I was reminded of a message Greg gave a couple months ago when he spoke about getting behind the banner of God. He asked the question, who do you pledge your allegiance to? Whose, whose banner will you get behind? In many ways, Jesus doesn't give us much of an option. He carried a banner all the way to his death for each one of you. Who else can you say that about? Who else would you follow? And can I get an amen? <laughs> okay. now, now that we've covered the first two priorities, I want to share an example of how God's priorities can start to wash over your thoughts and prayers. The situation is, unfortunately, I'm guessing many of us have attended a memorial service for someone who has passed away. And here's what the prayer could sound like. Father, thank you for comforting all of us in this difficult circumstance. I want to glorify you and be a light in this otherwise tragic situation. Give me the words of encouragement I'll need to speak to the family and friends I'll be seeing over the next couple of hours. Forgive me for being angry with you. I know your heart breaks in times of tragedy too. I believe something good could come from this situation because you promised you would change our mourning into dancing. I don't know when this will happen, but I'm trusting you for it. Jesus' third priority is found starting in verse 13, that his disciples would be protected from Satan. When John uses the phrase, the world, it's always used as a negative, in a negative context. But he's not talking about the planet Earth or humanity in general. He's talking about the world in rebellion to God, the world of unbelievers. Notice Jesus doesn't pray that we would be removed, becoming so insular that we only spend time with other Christians. He needs us to be enmeshed in the world alongside those who don't believe. But he also knows that when we do, we become targets for attack. 
because everything Jesus has taught up to this point is that Satan is real. He's powerful and he's crafty. Satan's goal is to destroy all of humanity, but believers in particular. 1 Peter 5.8 warns us, Be of sober spirit. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Peter's not talking about unbelievers. He's, he's warning, the, the warning is for us. The movies and books we read today portray satanic attacks as extremely dramatic events, in keeping with Peter's words. So it'll be easy for us to recognize and avoid, right? But in reality, the lies that we get caught up in often take on a more subtle approach. Here's a quote from the book The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, where Screwtape advises his nephew not to take the dramatic approach, but rather the more subtle one. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. All Satan needs to do is to confuse you into thinking, we don't have to give up anything. We can live our lives here on earth the way we've always done, while trying to, find God's, while trying to follow God's direction at the same time. But the Bible clearly warns we can't serve two masters. Be forewarned of the slippery road, the one without drama that so easily leads to destruction. Now, Satan can't destroy the promise of eternal life for a redeemed redeemed believer. That's guaranteed upon salvation. We're marked by the Holy Spirit. But he can destroy this life, rendering you useless for God's kingdom right now. And that's what he wants, getting in the way of God's plans to use your life to bring others to salvation. Jesus knows that Satan is coming for you, for your spouse, for your kids, your church. And so he prays for the protection from the will, from, from the evil one. His next priority is for the sanctification of his disciples through his word. Now, we would probably choose to avoid this work because it involves sacrifice and trading in what we've grown to love in this life to follow God's plans for our lives. It's not all bad. In fact, change within the kingdom of God is redemptive, providing purpose for our lives. And we're not alone. God gave us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us navigate the decisions we make on a daily basis. Jesus then goes on to say, make them holy by your truth. We're also given an owner's manual, though I know for some of you, reading an owner's manual doesn't come easy. So how does it all work? Well, practically speaking, it takes three steps. First of all, you have to know it. You can't adapt to something you don't know. Read it, study it, and grow in your understanding of it. Second of all, you have to believe it. It's not enough to know it. You actually have to believe that this is God's word, that it's actually true. Not that our interpretations of it are true, because I'm sure I misinterpret the Bible often, but the book itself is true. And here's the real challenge. We know the Bible includes lots of things that the world finds offensive. So the question is, are you willing to hold on to your beliefs even when you're being criticized for it. And the third point, it's not enough to know and believe it. It's crucial to obey it. Ultimately, right living is about behavior. It's about the words and actions that define your life. You have to put this book into practice in all areas of your life. Now, Jesus realizes this is hard. 
It's hard to find the time to, in our busy lives. It's hard to study it. Sometimes it's hard to believe it. Sanctification basically means a work in progress. And the key word here is work. It takes discipline, humility, and a willing heart. But the Holy Spirit is patiently waiting for you to call out to him to help you in this critical area of growth and maturity in your life. What does it look like to incorporate protection from Satan and sanctification into a prayer? Here's the situation, a parent's prayer for their son or daughter. And our prayer could sound something like this. Holy Spirit, my daughter is struggling with her friends at school, and while I care about her getting along, my bigger concern is for her integrity and character when she's with them. Surround her with friends, mentors, and teachers who will recognize who she is deep down, providing the direction and leadership she needs. Protect her from any lies she might be struggling with, which get in the way of her finding her potential in you. And even more important than her obedience to me, I pray that she will be obedient to you. May your word never be far from her thoughts or lips. And here's the third section of his prayer. See if you can identify where Jesus prays for us. Jesus' prayer is that we will be supernaturally unified, providing to the world, prove, I'm sorry, proving to the world that he is real. That's, that's, the, that's that the world would look at the selfless unity of the Christian church and say, wow, there's something there. We may not be ready to embrace everything about your beliefs, but we want to know more about your God. Now, some might look at the word unified and ask, so is it okay for us to have so many different denominations? Well, the short answer is yes. Different expressions of our faith creates variety, and God loves that. God's bigger concern is that we all come together as one family of faith, supporting one another to share the common language of salvation and to love and glorify God. That's the key. So when outsiders look at the Christian church, they say, yeah, there are a lot of different churches, but they all care and support one another. That's why it's important for Greg and Kevin to meet with other pastors and youth, youth groups in the Manchester area, because it's encouraging to know that we're, we're not alone. We share many of the same beliefs, values, and practices. We have brothers and sisters in other parts of the city, the state, the country, the world, all fighting for the same causes of Christ. If you remember, it was unity in practice last fall when Shiloh participated in the 10 days of prayer ministry, where church members from different churches around Manchester got together under one roof to spend time in worship and prayer. It resulted in all of us learning how to better serve and support one another. Because when we link arms, we can impact a much larger community in more ways than one church could do alone. As I prayed over this list of priorities myself, this is the one that caught my attention the most. There's a lot of work to be done in this area of unity. The sixth and final priority, Jesus' return. It's important to know that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we're spiritually connected to Jesus forever. But what Jesus is actually asking the Father for is that we would be physically with him where he is, in his presence in heaven. He looks forward to that. But that won't happen until he returns. So in effect, what he's praying is that he would come back soon. Now, I know this could be a difficult one to pray for because it means an end to everything we know. But let's think about it this way. If we believe God's word is true, then we have this promise that God plans to fix the reality of pain and suffering in our lives forever. 
don't get me wrong, there are things that are good in this world, education, healthcare, innovation, design, lots of wonderful things. But none of them can fix the root problem that plagues the human race, sin and Satan. They can do nothing about that. And this root problem creates greed, hatred, poverty, hunger, racial divide, and the list goes on. But God's, God's word tells us there is closure to this problem, which will take place in the end times. Like all of God's other promises, it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. So we should pray that God will send Jesus back because his return is critical to the setting things right. Let's look at how we can incorporate unity and Jesus' return into a prayer. You just read the morning news. Jesus, I'm so frustrated with what I'm hearing about in the news. Wars, division, and a general lack of concern for any kind of consensus or unity within society. But I read in your word that there's an end to all of it, and that end is you. In Paul's writings, he wasn't afraid to pray to hasten your return. And today is going to be hard for me to get through without the hope that you'll be returning soon. We've covered a lot today, and I appreciate you staying with us, with me. Um, us. <laughs> um, I've heard many Christians say that they've struggled with prayer over the course of their lives, and I'm no exception. And yet that goes completely against everything God intended for prayer to be. The inspiration for this message came when it occurred to me that our struggles might be because we haven't asked the question, God, what are the most important things to you? I know sometimes I've stepped away from prayer thinking, wow, that was a pretty one-sided conversation. That's why I was so convicted by his selflessness, the son glorifying the father, the father glorifying the son, not to mention his confidence Jesus said, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory we shared before the world began. Hebrews 4.14 tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence too. And I wonder if we could do that more effectively by pursuing a deeper appreciation of the things that concern God, the things that he values. When Jesus was asked, what would you grab on the way out? These were his priorities. I've memorized them, and I encourage you to do so. And here's a visual metaphor as a way to think about them as you pray. Picture this list like a blanket. Wrap it around you. Enjoy the comfort of knowing the things he's passionate about and allow them to permeate your thoughts as you meditate on them. The Holy Spirit will take it from there. God's priorities can and should graciously overshadow and influence the concerns and issues going on in our lives. And when they do, your conversation with him simply has to change. So I'm going to close, close this out in prayer, uh, responsive prayer, and then the worship team is going to lead us into our final song. So let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, my first priority will always be to glorify you, to make you famous. I'm committed to being bold and letting my light shine before others so that they may see my good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. Bind up my fickle nature. Let my loyalty and love for you show forth in the ways I love and serve others. Jesus, you are my protector, defender, and my shield. 
So I claim victory over Satan and protection from the father of lies for myself and those closest to me. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. God, you've promised you can use everything within me. I don't want to miss out on what's possible. I choose to build unity despite the world's divisiveness. The potential of a common bond under Christ is still the most powerful message. And I place my hope and confidence in Jesus. He holds the future, and when he returns, he will set things right. And I know where this will take place. The crown jewel of God's restored creation will be a glorious, brilliant, and sparkling city. God's word calls it the New Jerusalem, but I'll call it home. Amen.